And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Tuesday, February 13th, 2024, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton, Michelle Sandiford, and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, the hardware side of artificial intelligence. That's the latest security risk. Plus, nursing homes reveal a need for CDC to improve a national data reporting site. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, Alabama Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville dropped the last of his holds on military promotions at the end of last year. He has long shrugged off concerns about the cascading effects of that 10-month nominations blockade. But surveys show that the hold created uncertainty about the future of service members' careers, where their families live and work, and where their children go to school. Federal News Network's Anastasia Obis got more from Blue Star Families Vice President Tom Porter. Long-term impacts are much broader and deeper than what uh, the senator had communicated, that it would just impact two or 300 of the most senior admirals and generals. That's not true, because... When you can't promote those two or 300, it was actually more than 425 that we know now. But when you can't promote those officers into their new ranks and into their next jobs, you also can't promote the people that take their places in their jobs and you can't move them to the new locations. And so he impacted those careers and many others for the better part of of a whole year. And that's time that these officers and families who've committed their their lives to this career in the military, that's time that they won't get back. Because if you can imagine, if you are a, a, a Navy captain or, or an Army or Marine Corps colonel that's due to get promoted to general or admiral, you have a lot of peers that are promoted at about the same time. But when Senator Tuberville put them on hold, he separated people that were near peers and they're forever ahead of them, far ahead of them in the promotion cycle, and they never get that back. So then you've got, of course, those uh, senior service members and their families rethinking whether or not they should continue in the military as a career because this just happened to them. And then so that's reflected on our in our surveys. You've got an increasing amount of, of family members, military, that are unwilling to recommend military service to, to their family members. In our September uh, survey called the Polls Check, our, our respondents, 57% uh, of them, said that that hold on all those promotions decreases their satisfaction with military life. And 48% said that it decreases their likelihood to continue military service. The, so that has an incredible impact on retention in the military at a time where our military is, is is being challenged more than ever to meet its its recruiting goals. And then our broader surveys have told us that there are key problems that the military has to address in terms of quality of life for, uh, for our military and their family members that also need to be addressed. But central to your point is, or your concern about the, these uh, holds by Senator Tuberville, that is decreasing their quality of life to a point where the frustration is enormous and you had such a significant, about half, like I was saying, was reconsidering whether or not they were going to continue serving. Senator Tuberville, he maintained his position for a, for a long time, uh, that 
this was not affecting military families. This was not affecting service members. And you conducted a pulse check back in September. You talked to service members, you talked to family members, you talked to veterans. What were you hearing in terms of the specific examples of how the families were being affected? If you can imagine, if you are a military family, in the summertime, you, you pretty much know you're selected for your next duty station. So you're already making plans to move by the end of the summer. Might be overseas, might be across the country. But think about this. You've got kids that are ending their school year and they're getting ready to start the next school year and already enrolled most of the time in these new schools at the new duty location. Well, that family can't move. So those kids are in limbo and having to stick at their old schools, knowing that they're going to have to leave just any day without any knowledge. And then those same families, they have more than likely ended their lease at their current location or might, might have to stay in a hotel, might have to put their items in storage. And many times they've also entered into new leases at their new locations. But of course, they can't start that lease and they might have to be paying for them even before they're moved. So those are just two major uh, short-term impacts in addition to the long-term Im impacts that I mentioned earlier. What about the effect this had on overall readiness? What were you hearing there? Oh, that's an enormous impact because when you've got senior officers that uh, could not move into their new to their new jobs and assume their new rank, there has to be somebody that's in an acting position in that in that new location, and somebody that is in an acting position especially in the military, they don't get to create their own vision for how that unit, that command moves forward into the future. When we select these senior officers into these senior positions and promote them, it's because we have enormous confidence in their leadership ability, ability and their ability to think ahead, act ahead, and take us into the years to come to be more competitive in a, in a very, very competitive, uh, increasingly competitive global national security environment that you see taking place right now in the Middle East, right now uh, in the seas near China. All over the world, we're being tested. And if we have people in leadership positions that are only in an acting position, it means they can only be a caretaker and not move forward with a new plan for that command. And this is also a question that lawmakers are asking the Government Accountability Office, kind of understand the short term consequences of this. We still don't have enough to understand the long term impacts. But what might we see moving forward, maybe a year or two or three? I think it, it uh, depends a lot on does this happen again? Mm -hmm. um, there are a number of things that military uh, service members and their families are have to weigh. And you, you mentioned it briefly before, and we've done our own surveys before, because this came about the same time as Congress started flirting with a government shutdown. In the beginning, we just barely kept the government funded past the end of the fiscal year and into the current fiscal year. And we still don't have that current complete funding for the entire year. So in addition to Senator Tupperville's ill-advised uh, holds on the promotions, uh, you also have military families that are having to live in this chaotic environment that is is not their fault. Uh, they're having to react to Congress's whims and their fights between the two parties that result in the government not being funded on time. 
So we're halfway through the fiscal year now, uh, and we still are living under the previous year's budget. And so that's that's a problem. It's, an, it's a massive challenge that they're going to have to look at going ahead because anybody that's been serving in the last 20 years, now I just finally retired from Navy Reserve after 27 years. I, I've lost count of the um, the government shutdowns or the threat of government shutdowns and what that means to my career and my colleagues' careers. It's normal now. And so we've normalized chaos within the military family, and that just contributes to dissatisfaction with serving in uniform. Why are you going to keep making these sacrifices if Congress doesn't respect your service enough to keep the government funding to pay your paychecks? Tom Porter, vice president of Blue Star Families, speaking with Federal News Network's Anastasia Obis. Check out Anastasia's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, nursing homes reveal a need for CDC to improve a national data reporting site. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. For nearly 20 years, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has operated a data gathering site. It's called the National Healthcare Safety Network. In 2020, CDC made it mandatory for nursing homes to report COVID cases. Suddenly, thousands of nursing homes had to enroll in the network. It didn't go well. Things have improved since then. We get the latest from Health and Human Services Assistant Regional Inspector General Marshall Allen. Mr. Allen, good to have you with us. Great to be here, Tom. Thank you. And tell us about this network and what really happened when they made it mandatory for nursing homes to report health data. Well, the CDC has what's called the National Healthcare Safety Network, and NHSN is the acronym for it. It's a data gathering tool to track healthcare acquired infections. And it's been typically used more for hospitals. But when the pandemic hit, CMS made it mandatory for nursing homes to report to NHSN, and they had to report all types of COVID data. So they had to report suspected COVID cases, total COVID deaths, PPE, hand hygiene, ventilator capacity, all types of information about COVID now had to be gathered. And this was in May of 2020 when this requirement went into place. And I know your listeners will remember that was the absolute heat of the pandemic. I mean, this was a real crisis moment. And so this previously voluntary reporting for nursing homes now became mandatory and CDC had a massive challenge on its hand. How do you enroll thousands of nursing homes in a matter of weeks to accurately gather and report this really crucial information. Well, it sounds like it must be, frankly, a primitive system because online enrollment for applications now is a part of American life, pretty widespread. And there are sites that, you know, 10,000 people sign up an hour and get an account. What was the difficulty? Yeah, I could see why you'd say that, but it's actually a pretty complicated system. And then also don't underestimate the stress that the nursing homes were under at this time. Nursing homes are notoriously short-staffed and trying to juggle a lot of different things at the moment. And don't forget, COVID was really unknown at this time. So you have these nursing homes where they have very high turnover, not a lot of trained staff having to create a login for this system. And I know it should seem real simple, but process was a little convoluted. Like specifically, at one point in the process, they had to upgrade their security access and they actually had to send in some actual like hard copy documentation to verify their 
identities because they didn't have a quick access kind of immediate identity kind of thing built into the system. So it was something that had to happen really fast under under a huge amount of stress with the nursing homes not being well-trained or well-staffed. Right. So it's partly a systemic issue with the way nursing homes are organized and the kind of staffing they have, but it also sounds like there was a little bit of a process issue that CDC needed to fine-tune. Yes, definitely. And so they sent out a lot of guidance. Um, They held a lot of webinars. But remember, this all happened in a matter of weeks. And so they had to add to the system, too. They had to create in the NHN system the capacity to gather all this data about COVID that had not previously been gathered before. And so they did webinars. They did everything they could to get people enrolled. But they had about 12,000 nursing homes enrolled like really all at once. And so there were a lot of challenges with the enrollment. Getting people logged in was a challenge. Having people understand the guidance was a challenge. And one of the biggest challenges was at the help desk. I mean, you can imagine the help desk for NHSN had never seen anything like this before. And suddenly they have thousands of nursing homes needing assistance. And the way the help desk was created, it did not have any phone assistance or live chat ability. It was all email. And so, you know, you have nuanced questions about the nursing home might have needed to know, what do I need to report? How do I need to report it? How do I get logged in? I forgot my password. I mean, you can imagine all these calls to the help desk, thousands of them at once. And so it created a massive backlog because they didn't have uh, live support. It just made it really difficult to get these things answered over email. And did this enrollment actually get accomplished in time to inform understanding of COVID in nursing homes? It did. And I mean, that's pretty remarkable. You know, 12,000 nursing homes got got enrolled rapidly. I mean, there were backlogs, there were hassles, there were frustrations, but they did get enrolled. They did uh, report the data. One one other thing that we found, and this went into our recommendations, was um, all the data reported to NHSN is self-reported data. And there are some QA checks done on the data, but we asked nursing homes what their confidence was. We did a survey of about 200 nursing homes, and we also did interviews with nursing homes. And we asked them what their confidence was about the completeness and the accuracy of the data that they were reporting NHSN. And about one in four said they did not have confidence in the completeness and accuracy of the data. And so one of our recommendations to CDC was to bump up their QA checks, you know, give better guidance and documentation on the front end, and then also check the data on the back end, you know, have a QA process in place so that you can really verify that the data that you're gathering is really accurate. We're speaking with Marshall Allen. He's Assistant Regional Inspector General at Health and Human Services. And now that we are here in 2024, you did this work, this inspection of this system in late 23. Why now? Yeah, NHSN has changed a lot. Um, And we even asked the nursing homes whether things had improved since the height of the pandemic, and they had improved. But they still had challenges, even when we were doing our data gathering. This was uh, two years after the, the height of the pandemic when we were talking to them. They still had challenges with the reporting, with the different different aspects of the system. And the, the reporting has been reduced now. They're still gathering vaccine data from the nursing homes. But the other thing CDC is talking about doing is expanding the use of NHSN. And so as they look forward to expanding the use of it, as they continue to gather this vaccine data, it's important that they take these steps You know that we recommended. Another thing we recommended is that they give some live support, whether it's chat or telephone support on their help desk, just so that the users don't get frustrated when they're trying to get that guidance. And what is the current population of reporting entities now on the network? 
I think it's about 15,000 nursing homes reporting. Um, I don't know the number of hospitals that was outside the scope of what we looked at. I know they added 12,000, and I believe they had about 3,000 who were already voluntarily enrolled before the pandemic. So fair to guess there's tens, maybe 20s of thousands of hospitals that had already been reporting for some time. Yeah, there are fewer hospitals than nursing homes, so there probably aren't that many. But yeah, hospitals have been reporting to NHSN for years, and they report things like, you know, C. diff infections, MRSA infections, central line infections, all that type of data is really important. But another thing with the quality improvement, I mean, the hospitals were outside the scope of what we're doing, but the hope is that if they could improve the QHX for the nursing homes, that maybe that would also affect the QHX for the hospital data too. And maybe they could have hospitals that are good at this deputized to teach the new entities how to, how to get into the system and how to use it. Definitely. And I think one of the challenges for the nursing homes is the turnover rates. You know, the staffing is at a crisis level in nursing homes right now. And a big part of that is just turnover of the staff. And that was something we found with everyone we talked to. You can train one person to be the the key point person for the NHSN reporting, but then that person might leave. (laughs) And then you have to train someone new. And so the turnover in nursing homes is just a real challenge for keeping this system up to date. And you said in the report that the COVID reporting is about to expire that requirement for the nursing homes. And then you told me that there is going to be an expansion of entities reporting. So what is next for the network? Well, we don't know um, for sure what that'll be. And the CDC officials didn't tell us what that would be. But the vaccine data is still, COVID-19 vaccine data is still required to be reported to NHSN by nursing homes. And then they have talked about expanding it, but they weren't specific about what that would look like. Because if hospitals routinely report some of these infections and so forth, that kind of stuff happens in nursing homes all the time. Definitely. I mean, there's a lot of ways NHSN could be used. It's a really valuable tool. What other recommendations did you have and what was CDC's reaction so far? Well, so we had three recommendations. The first one was to add some live chat, live support to the help desk, a phone person or someone on live chat, just so specific questions could be answered in real time. They partially concurred with that. You know, they're, they're required to concur or non-concur on this one. They partially concurred. They said that they have been making a lot of improvements and we responded to that. Well, we still think, you know, that you should add the live support. And then the other two were related to the quality of the data. One recommendation was to improve the guidance that they were providing to people as they enrolled. CDC concurred with that. And then the other one they concurred with was improving the quality assurance process so that they could be confident that the data that's being reported is complete and accurate. Marshall Allen is Assistant Regional Inspector General at the Health and Human Services Department. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much. Have a great day. And we'll post this interview along with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, how acquisition hinders national security. But first, the hardware side of artificial intelligence is the latest cybersecurity risk. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Artificial intelligence, it's the type of software that's finding its way into nearly every domain. But AI also depends on specialized semiconductor circuits. My next guest warns these chips and the systems that use them also need protection from theft and misuse. Oni Arna 
is a consultant at the Center for a New American Security, and he joins me now from Finland. Mr. Arna, good to have you with us. Great to be here. And what is the issue? These are graphics types of chips that go into you know, specialized computers for AI. Tell us the dynamic here in terms of hardware and software, because my question is, doesn't a lot of AI just run on standard systems that everyone was already running applications on? So it is possible to run some limited AI systems on uh, even your phone. For example, if you have Face ID, uh, then that relies on facial recognition that is running on your iPhone. But these more powerful systems, such as ChatGPT, are trained and operated in these huge cloud data centers that have tens of thousands of very expensive, very specialized chips. Those are the chips that our report is mostly about. So when I do, say, a Google search and it gives me one of its generated AI types of things, it's displaying on my computer. The calculation is done on a Google facility somewhere that probably has this specialized computing. Yes, exactly. And you read, you know, a lot that NVIDIA is the largest producer of these types of chips, but are there others? There are definitely other producers. For example, Google designs and makes their own AI specialized chips. AMD is another major chip designer that makes GPUs, but especially for uh, large-scale AI applications, NVIDIA has most of the total market share. And just maybe for a minute before we get into the security aspect, just briefly describe what is the market dynamic. Say I'm, I don't know, I'll make up an agency, Homeland Security, and I have an AI application that I need to run in fairly good scale. Do organizations such as that tend to buy their own hardware to run this, or do they just simply sign up for a cloud that already has it? Often, even quite large organizations do sign up for these very large cloud providers because they are specialized, they already have the existing facilities and know how to run them well. But it does sometimes happen that very large organizations can build their own data centers and own clusters. All right. So what is the security question you've raised in a pretty detailed article that these chips could fall into the wrong hands or the subsystems could fall into the wrong hands and therefore what could happen? Yes, exactly. So these chips have become strategically quite important because AI technology itself has become quite important in the general competition between the US and China. And so for that reason, the United States placed export controls on some of the most powerful GPUs in October of 2022. And now what this article is centrally about is ways of trying to make those export controls more targeted and more enforceable by having the chips essentially help enforce the controls. So there is some functionality that could be put on the chip such that if it was misused or installed somewhere, put on a circuit board, it wouldn't function? Yes, for example, the chip could potentially contact specific known servers, computers essentially, to test whether it can reach the right computers quickly enough and therefore demonstrate roughly where in the world that chip is. And so, for example, suppose that the chip was sold in Korea, if it can very quickly contact a trusted computer in Korea, then we can be quite confident that it is not in China. And this could be very useful for enforcing these export controls. And how amenable do you think the chip manufacturers are to putting on this functionality? The chip manufacturers have expressed some concerns that it can take some time to implement these features as they don't already exist on the chips. 
And there are some concerns that some users would not want to buy these chips. But in this case, you could try to target the chips at those who would not be able to buy unlimited chips in the first place. And if that self-revelation was built into the chip, then could someone, say, sniffing out chip activity over the wire, say, golly, I know where that data center is now? No, for complicated reasons. Essentially, these mechanisms would rely on complicated cryptographic schemes to ensure that only the people who are actually supposed to receive specific messages can read the messages and get only the information that they were supposed to get and not other information. Right. And export controls, of course, depend on the systems and compliance measures of the people making the chips, and they're not going to fulfill an order they think might be from North Korea or from China, for example. What about chips just being stolen off the loading dock of the fab, you know, when they, there's a whole box of them, and just someone on the loading dock could be bribed into saying, just give me that box or scoop out a handful of them for me? Yes, it's almost inevitable that some handfuls of chips can be smuggled in this way. But again, because these chips are used by the tens of thousands, being able to steal even a single container doesn't necessarily make that large of a difference. And so the more important question is being able to prevent very large scale operations. And getting back to your idea that on-chip governance could be implemented in some manner, is there an architectural solution to make it easier for the chip manufacturers? For example, there are programmable chips, and I'm presuming GPUs don't have that field programmable function to them, but could a chip be added you know, into a substrate next to the GPU chip? And that's where that functionality could be, but essentially for manufacturing, it's one chip. Yes. So... Essentially, these large, complicated GPU chips already have many, many modules on them. And one of the modules that they already have is something called a platform security processor. There is a security module on the chip that is responsible for specific security-related and cryptography-related operations. And this module could likely be expanded and reprogrammed to be able to implement these mechanisms. But this would still require a significant redesign process that would take some time, but nothing that these chip companies are not already used to doing. I mean, these are massively scaled chips, right, with several million transistors, fair to say? I believe it's much further in the billions rather than millions. I'm dating myself. I remember when one transistor had three leads on it, and that's what you put in a circuit board from Heathkit. Well, is there a way that the intended customer could add something or have a key to unlock the chip in some manner such that it becomes your proprietary chip at that point. It could never be reused, but that particular client, say that Google Cloud, could unlock it in some manner. This is something that could potentially be done essentially by, as you said, supplying some kind of cryptographic license to the intended owner. And then if the chip somehow gets redirected on its way to the ultimate intended consumer, it would not work. All right. And what should the government's role be in all of this in encouraging, you know, the NVIDIAs of the world and I guess whoever else makes them, the Taiwan Semiconductor, I don't know who makes them, but to get them to get on board with this, is this something that should come through the State Department, through Homeland Security, through the DOD or what? Yes. In the report, we recommend that the National Institute for Standards and Technology establish a working group to help coordinate standards and define exactly what these mechanisms should do and who should have what kind of control over them. And then 
agencies such as the Bureau of Industry and Security, which is responsible for export controls, could require chip companies to implement these mechanisms as standardized by NIST on chips that are then exported to, uh, for example, risky countries from where they might get smuggled onward to China. And is your sense from this, from the standpoint of the Center for a New American Security, that NIST and State Department and the other mechanisms get this, that this is something they recognize? So the Bureau of Industry and Security recently asked for proposals for technical measures for making export controls more targeted when they updated the export controls in last October. So they are aware of these ideas, but this is still a very novel idea, which we wrote this whole report about it. All right. So the policy is the easy part to establish, but getting those chips reoriented to this trusted execution type of idea, that's going to take some time. Yes. In general, the design process for these cutting-edge GPUs takes several years. And so even if NVIDIA started on this now, at least they tell me that it would take several years for them to, to implement this which is, of course, a different question of how quickly they could really do it if they really had to. Oni Arna is a consultant for the Institute of AI Policy and Strategy, his paper published by the Center for a New American Security. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks. Great to be with you. And we'll post this interview along with a link to that paper at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Take the Federal Drive with you. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, how acquisition hinders national security? This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Network. Contractors probably know as much about the risks to national security as the Defense and Homeland Security Departments. My next guest says the federal acquisition system, though, hinders those departments from obtaining what they really need. Larry Allen is a longtime federal sales and marketing consultant. He joins me now. And Larry, you're saying the acquisition system is kind of in the way of what everyone knows the government needs. Tell us more. Uh, my concern is that while the acquisition system today is focusing on things like socioeconomic benefits and trying to do everything through the acquisition system, whether it's Uber compliance, cybersecurity, all of these things are important, but they also all have their place, Tom. And that place is not to hamstring the efficient delivery of critical systems. And as you look around the world today with regional conflicts in the Mideast, uh, brewing trouble in Asia, you've got Russia involved in Ukraine. I think this is a time when the United States needs to wake up and say, hey, you know, all of these perceived goods through the acquisition system are really secondary or should be in terms of focus. What we should be focusing on is being able to meet the potential threats that state and non-state actors bring to us and have a more efficient acquisition system so that our national security agencies have the tools they need to protect us. There are a lot of requirements for cybersecurity of those contractors, for what they do in terms of their labor practices and diversity hiring, and what they do with respect to carbon emissions. I guess if you have omelet days for your employees and use those little <laughs> gas-powered hot plates, 
you're going to be in trouble. I'm joking, sort of. But is this the kind of thing you mean that just hinders competitive bidding on reality of what the government needs? Yeah, it, it certainly is. I mean, I think there are a couple of impacts of today's acquisition system and kind of the sideshows, if you will, that uh, we're uh, we have to jump through. One of those is that it reduces competition, even as the administration wants to increase it, particularly among small businesses. Look, small businesses don't have the bandwidth to jump through that many hurdles. Even if you're a larger business, you can provide the things that government asks of you, but the government acquisition system itself is moving more slowly than it should be because we have to look at all of these side issues and as I said, I don't mean to say that they're not important. They all have their place. Unfortunately, I think that place is now up at the front of the line where it really shouldn't be. At the front of the line needs to be efficient acquisition. Look at commentators around the U.S., Tom. You see a lot of them saying that we haven't faced these many threats since the 1930s, and we need to make sure that we're not flat-footed and Having a better acquisition system is really central to that. Could you maybe comment on what seem to be two canaries, if you will, in the mineshaft of procurement? One is that even though slightly more dollars go to small business year after year, the number of small business vendors is shrinking. The roster is shrinking, even as the government tries to encourage more people to come in. Well, that's the first one. Well, the first one, I think you have to understand, I think there's a tendency in government to look at small business as a monolith. And small business is not a monolithic entity. There are different types of small businesses. So what you see when you look at the government sales data that goes to small business, you see a lot of successful small companies that get the bulk of that business and a lot of newer and other small businesses that don't. So look, are our small business numbers going up incrementally? Yeah, that's great. But that money is going to really a, you know, a cast of usual suspects and then some other people who happen to be close enough to that cast of usual suspects. They're the supporting cast, if you will. And that's what we get. You have professional small businesses who are dedicated to the government market and professional large businesses and those are the ones that have the resources and also don't have any choice but to invest in the never-ending stream of special and unique requirements to do business in this market. We're speaking with Larry Allen. He is president of Allen Federal Business Partners. And the other canary I wanted to ask you about is the rising use of other transaction authorities, OTAs, which take place outside, of course, the federal acquisition regulation and the DFARS. So far, Congress is okay with it. Everybody's okay with it. I wonder what scandal is brewing out there in OTAs that we haven't seen yet, just having watched this market a long time. But is that another indicator that some things are not what they should be on the regulated side or the more regulated side? Tom, I think you're right on the nose with that. You look at the OTA use, it's a non-FAR-based acquisition method. Would you look at other things that are uh, been heretofore used for kind of niche acquisitions like small business innovation research acquisition, SIBRs. And then you look at uh, the Defense Authorization Act and you see that Congress specifically directed the Department of Defense for this fiscal year to look at more commercial solution openings, which is a OTA-like acquisition method. 
If you're looking for all of these ways around standard acquisition, you have to ask yourself, is the main acquisition highway just totally bottlenecked all of the time? And if it is, what can we do to ease those bottlenecks to get the acquisition traffic on the traditional roads moving more smoothly so that we don't have to have all of these workarounds that get us where we need to be? And speaking of that relationship between government and industry, you're also writing in this week about CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, and the FBI seeming under some coming rules to be able to get into the systems of contractors and look around in there. Tom, this is a proposed rule. The comment period on this proposed rule just closed. Uh, and even though the FAR Council extended the comment period, I don't think this is a rule that a lot of contractors have caught. As you said, this is a rule that would allow CISA and the FBI to look at uh, contractor uh, IT systems anytime that there is a cyber breach. And it gives those agencies almost unfettered access to contractor IT systems when there is a cyber breach. The concern is that anytime you give any agency or anybody unfettered access to your information systems, you know, there's no real way of controlling where they go. They're going to go poke over here. They're going to go look over there. And while the, uh, they may be originally looking for, you know, what happened to cause the cyber breach, they may also inadvertently roll over some things. And look, we've also had incidences where people's personal information has been breached by the office in you know, by systems maintained by the Office of Personnel Management. You've got critical non-government contractor information in those systems for your commercial customers. I think that this is a proposed rule that contractors really need to pay attention to. And even though the comment period may have technically closed, go ahead, submit some comments, raise your concerns, make sure that people know that uh, this could be a real burden for you if in fact you think it's problematic. The rule is going to happen, even though they extended the comment period. They don't propose rules and then suddenly say at the end of the rulemaking comment period, gosh, you're right, we don't need this, and toss it out. There's going to be something, so you might as well get in on, on what commenting is still left. Well, I think that's particularly true in an area where you're talking about cybersecurity, Tom. Cybersecurity is one of those things where people are like, well, we need everything we can get. Well, cybersecurity is really important, it is, but it's not just important for government contracting. If you're a company that sells both commercially and to the government, you have every right and your commercial customers have every right to make sure that the information you use in the conduct of your non-government business remains secure and it's reasonably safe from a government agency coming in with its camel's nose under the tent to sniff somewhere else and then either intentionally or quasi-intentionally sniffing down a road that was beyond the original intent of the rule. Right. Lord knows what people save on their C drives in the desktop folder. <laughs> right. <laughs> Larry Allen is president of Allen Federal Business Partners. As always, thanks so much. Tom, thank you, and I wish your listeners happy selling. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. 57 past the hour. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. Up next, 
the top national headlines from CBS News and the Federal Newscast. I'm Tom Temin. The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA. Hello and thanks for joining us on this Tuesday, February 13th, 2024, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton, Michelle Sandiford, and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, the hardware side of artificial intelligence is the latest cybersecurity risk. Plus, Nursing homes reveal a need for CDC to improve a national data reporting site. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of the Federal Drive. But first, few topics raise the temperatures of federal employees as much as changes to their office spaces. Add to that the Biden administration's push for your return to the office, and emotions ratchet up even more. In this week's Federal Report, Chuck Hardy, the chief architect of the General Services Administration, tells Federal News Network's Jason Miller about how the Workplace Innovation Lab is helping create the office space of the future. Since it opened in in January of last year, January 23, we've conducted over 300 tours in the space with over 7,000 federal employees, which came from over 100 different agencies or bureaus, about 1,800 registered users on our website. Those are folks that can come in and book reservations and do things. Uh, Last year, we had 4,200 individual desk reservations and over 3,900 meeting room reservations. Uh, We're getting feedback and input from these folks, and 90% of the top 10 rooms reserved were for four people, suggesting that the will was a valuable resource for federal agency teams to collaborate. And I'm happy to say the feedback about the will has been overwhelmingly positive. Customer experience rating of the will is 4.3 out of 5. And with many folks providing us good feedback along the way, we're also seeing 85% of the users really want to see the will keep going, and, and we're going to do that. Overall, some agencies use the space for off-site meetings. Some use it for helping drive change in their organizations to get people to broaden their perspectives and others uh, to experience what offerings are out there to help meet their missions. And some just because it aligned with what they had to do that day. And so they booked a seat and went in there and worked that day. So a whole lot of different experiences and reasons. But that's what we were looking for, and it's made that effort last year worthwhile in the first year of the will really productive. Has there been any feedback, positive, negative, neutral, that surprised you? Have you gotten any kind of trends you could point to in terms of of what people liked or disliked so far in the first year? Yeah, there hasn't been, I I think, any overwhelming negative feedback or or positive feedback since I love, absolutely loves this one thing kind of thing. So it's, it's all over, been, like I said, predominantly positive. I think one trend that we're seeing, and I think it's going to remain, is that that work and workspaces need to remain agile and flexible, or in other words, kind of fluid to address kind of the current environment we're in. And we need to manage that ever-changing environment. So this makes managing the surge vitally important in properly planning spaces. And I think agencies are learning that. But more directly, it's sending that message, don't build space for your busiest time of the year. 
instead build it for the mean and have solutions in place like federal co-working, like commercial co-working or like telework that effectively and efficiently absorb those surges. And so they got to see how working in a, let's call it a joint use federal facility to help solve some of those surge needs, some of those locational needs. Another trend we're seeing, and it's best demonstrated in the will by an increased demand for collaboration spaces and neighborhoods for uh, organizations with a hybrid workforce, places they can go and bring people together, meet in an effective way and accomplish their mission while not ignoring the individual solo work that's going on and the headset down work. So if you think about it, nobody's coming in or honestly nobody, but rarely does someone come in to collaborate for eight hours straight. They, they do need some places to go and conduct heads down time. And so we're getting feedback and I think in a positive way that there's ability to do both of those. And then finally, and this is, I think, a trend that's going to last as well, is proper acoustical design. With the increase in hybrid meetings going on in the office alongside the individual solo work I just mentioned, well-designed acoustics is essential. And so not only from the furniture side, where you're seeing a lot more soft surfaces, uh, the technology that provides uh, noise dampening uh, technology that makes conversations more audible, all those solutions agencies are seeing that probably weren't in place two years ago or three years ago that are solving some of the concerns they have about office environments. So again, I think the trends point toward agile, flexible, and proper acoustical design with variety of, of space types. The acoustical design is so important. People forget that. Uh, and I think people got used to working from home where it's probably quieter, easier to mute things. When you are looking at what are some of those technologies that maybe have really stood out to you? Again, you said softer surfaces, noise, uh, tempering uh, designs. Is, is that the type of thing you're starting to look at more of? The, those are the things that you've had people talk to you mostly about. Give me a sense of, of about what you're seeing in, in that realm. There's been a lot of different technology kind of improvements over over the last year and, and finding their way into the will. And on the acoustic side, from the start, we had, for lack of a better way to characterize them, phone booths that were sound controlled rooms that you could go into and there were one person booths and there were four person booths and letting agencies and having the conversations with agencies know that the cost effectiveness of providing a furniture solution for a sound controlled environment that can be moved it's plugged into the wall into a normal outlet but if you don't need this location you can pick it up and move it someplace else are things that can start to solve some of these mixed scenarios that will go on in the office where the person next to you is having a call, a webinar call where he's he or she is talking out loud, or you have a loud talker that's just on the phone with somebody. A solution like that where they can step away from their desk, walk into that booth, have that half hour, hour call, and then walk back to the desk and conduct business, both cost effective and efficient for the business lines that we're dealing with. And the other thing that the will did was you hear about a lot of the bright lights and neat stuff out there, but the will actually let people try it to see, oh, this actually does work. Yes, I could sit in here for a half an hour and have a phone call or an hour and have a phone call and not feel claustrophobic. People outside this aren't hearing me. I'm not disturbing anybody. And they start to take those solutions and interpret it to their mission and their agency's needs and say, yeah, this would work for us or this wouldn't work for us. And then many of our vendors also just swapped out products based on feedback they received from the users. So additionally, post Neocon, which is a major event for furniture industry in Chicago, that uh, is when the furniture industry rolls out new products uh, from their side. We saw some of those offers, offerings flow into the lab as well. 
technology from the start was kind of tweaked into based on user requests, multiple virtual meeting technologies that are used across government flowed into the startup screens, making meetings really just one click away. So whether you were on Teams or Zoom or Google, it was all on there and easy, somewhat frictionless connection. So all those kind of things to make things easier. Some of those phone booths that I mentioned were actually elevated. Uh, and we had some folks uh, ask about the accessibility of those. Since the start of the world to today, those manufacturers are already addressing the uh, accessibility issues in those booths. And so it's good to see that we're not only signaling changes that need to be made in their offerings, but the furniture vendors in the industry is actually responding with with solutions. So it's all good. Sounds like a successful year. You went through all the uh, data and some of the statistics. Let's talk about going into 2024 and beyond. Uh, what's the next evolution for the uh, Workplace Innovation Lab? How's it going to continue to evolve? The lab will continue to evolve and it will continue on. Uh, we're moving from the second floor to some new space on our top floor in our 1800F building. And, and we're keeping one of the three areas that we had on the second floor fully operational as we do that because we wanted to make sure that we were still continuing to serve the federal population in, in D.C., while we're going through some of the changes and broadening. The seventh floor is going to broaden the scope of the workplace research we're doing. In addition to a strong partnership with technology in the furniture industry, it's also going to demonstrate some low-cost changes to workplaces that could reap benefits for our end users. For example, how can we take workplace change and achieve it reusing some of the existing furniture we already have? So one of the areas in the current will configuration was using all existing furniture. We showed how that worked and agencies appreciated that because we have a lot of agencies that are strapped for funding to retool their, their workplaces. And that's not necessarily a need in, in some locations. You have good furniture, you have good pieces. Let's, let's show you how you can do it. And the new wills can also show areas of how do you blend some of those? How do you get pieces of new, as I talked about those standalone pieces and how do you combine those with existing pieces you have? to respond to your current needs of today. So that's the plan for 2024 as we move to stand this up. And as we continue to go forward, it will continue to be kind of this advanced research program for GSA around furniture, technology, and workplace that will constantly feed us information from our clients' needs and our end users' needs on what we should be leaning forward into developing as, as product lines for us. Chuck Hardy, the chief architect at the General Services Administration, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, nursing homes reveal the need for CDC to improve a national data reporting site. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.